Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. He's the author of The House of Wisdom, which is the portrait book I'm holding up right here. Please welcome Jonathan Neons. And it's a great pleasure to have you here and welcome to all that age 12. And as always, of course, we in, begin with, and as you mentioned in the book, and you, and I'm going to put a link in this to your video you did on the, your introduction to the House of Wisdom as well in the description. But it's kind of an understudied feel, Arabic science, when you say, in this, so how did you come across the House of Wisdom and Arabic science? Well, it's actually kind of an interesting story. Thank you for having me on the podcast and to address your readers. I, most of my professional life in the first half of it was spent as a journalist for Reuters. And so I was posted uh, in Turkey and in Iran and in Jakarta and a lot in the Muslim world. And particularly in Iran, I noticed just how sophisticated the ayatollahs and the clerics were. And it really seemed to contrast with what we told in the Western media that they're a bunch of clowns, that they're medieval, that they're not sophisticated. And yet when you get to meet them, especially the higher level clerics, you realize they are incredibly sophisticated, perhaps the last living examples of sort of a Socrates system of education, a Socratic system. They, they frame questions, they, they explore possibilities, they throw out options. And so it just got me thinking that there's a great deal of sophistication here that the West is overlooks. So that was one element. Another, so I actually was writing a book about my time in Iran and the editor I had was an elderly gentleman, very well-educated in New York. And he said, well, for your next book, you should write about Arab influence on the West. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty cool idea. And so that got me started on a personal basis. As soon as I started studying it, I found that it's not that I had discovered anything. In fact, I've often wondered why the House of Wisdom should even be published and why there should be readers. And yet it is published and it's available in almost 12 foreign language editions as well. So it's been quite successful. That's impressive. And the question is, why don't we know this stuff? So I grew up in the 1960s and early 70s as a child in grade school and uh, middle schools was never taught about Islamic influence. I was taught that Western culture was a direct descendant of Greek and Roman culture. And so the information is there available. Um, I have in my academic work written in detail about why we, we don't pay attention to that, but we can, we can sort of move beyond that um, unless you'd like to hear more. Yeah, maybe this just us later, but right now I want to begin with your, uh, you don't have to go back to 
the Islamic part, but I want to open with, as you opened in your book about a British scholar who travels with the first crusade to the Islamic world, not to kill the infidels, but he's actually there to learn from the Arabic Arabs. So what made him go to their Arab world and learn from them? And instead of killing them, as most people are doing at the time. Right. Well, we're talking about a young man named Adelard. And in the keeping with the convention of the time, he was known as Adelard of Bath, which is a town in the West country of England. The frustrating part about studying this period is we don't have an awful lot of firsthand accounts or details. So we can only infer from some of his commentaries and from our general knowledge of social trend what he was after and why. Um, but he was representative of a new man. So in the early modern period in Europe, a new social class arose of, they were not the religious classes, they were not the ruling elite, and they were not the peasants, but they were the, sort of the beginning of what we eventually might call a middle class. And the way to advancement was education and skill. And so some became artisans and um, produced goods and some dealt in ideas. And so we had this sort of ferment in society of the understanding that knowledge could advance them uh, socially as well as um, financially and personally, of course. And so we don't know why exactly he got or how he got the idea that there was knowledge available out there in the Eastern part of the world that was not available to him in the schools of France where he was educated. So he was a new man, but we don't know how he became aware of it, but he definitely did become aware that there were opportunities in the East. And so he, he seems to have put himself on a ship and headed out towards what is today Syria and Lebanon and Turkey. And we don't have, again, a lot of detail, but we, he does record that he survived an earthquake in the town of Antioch. And the U.S. Geological Survey has published a list of all historical earthquakes. And so we know that he must have survived the big earthquake of 1114 A.D., so we have a good idea of when he was there, and we have a vague idea of when he came back to England, and he brought all these ideas. Um, he brought a notion of the elements of Euclid, so Euclidean geometry. He brought back some ideas of astronomy, astrology, and philosophy. And he became an elder figure, an intellectual leader in England and in the court. So that's how he spread his influence. Wouldn't he later inspire the late, the later Roger Bacon and Francis Bacon as well? Uh, well, we think so. Again, you know, connections are difficult to make, but he definitely um, introduced and really gave a big push to the idea that science could be a way to understand the world separate from religion, which had been the dominant viewpoint of his day. So something I find especially fascinating about Islamic world and Islamic history is that contrary to to European and Christ, the Christian world, the Arabs and Islam, they pushed science forward. And as we shall discuss in a moment about the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, but they actually pushed it forward and they, they didn't frown upon scholars or scientists. They actually, and I believe a lot of this and as we probably will discuss as well, a lot of the Arabic science from the House of Wisdom we'd have to the, the modern world probably wouldn't exist as we know it without, without that scholars from the Arabic world, right? That That's how kind of they 
but it's paved the way for the modern world and eventually. Well, I think, uh, thank you. I think you've made a very interesting point. And as you said, I recently did a video which will be linked in the podcast below. Um, I get a lot of pushback when people read my books because they say, well, you talk about Islamic science or Muslim science and how can there be an Islamic science? And the reason I use that term is exactly the point that you just made is that in this period that we're talking about, Islam and science were not at odds with each other. One reinforced the other. And in fact, a lot of the scholars that we think of as scientists were also not only deeply religious, but were trained in the religious sciences. Um, I could like to give a few examples of how religion and science coexisted and how science strengthened religion. So those of you who know anything about Islam know there's some key rituals, one of which is you pray between three and five times a day. There are slightly different interpretations. Um, And in the modern period, and actually the immediate post-Muhammad period, you pray towards Mecca. So let's think about that. That's pretty easy to do if you're in the Arabian Peninsula. Presumably, you know where Mecca is at all times. But the Islamic empire spread so quickly. So if you're a merchant, a Muslim merchant, and you're in China and it's time to pray, how do you know where Mecca is? If you're in Afghanistan or what we call Afghanistan, how do you know where Mecca is? So there were sort of folk methods. You could use the sun, you could use certain roads, but the scientists stepped up and said, no, in fact, the earth is curved. Hmm. So the direct line to Mecca is not what we think of as a straight line, but is actually curves over the earth. Hmm. And so they were able to correct the direction for prayer. And again, if you know anything about Islam, you probably know that the mosques were generally oriented towards Mecca. So someone, an architect, a designer had to know where Mecca was in order to place his building correctly. Another ritual, if you have the resources and the health, was to make the Hajj, the pilgrimage, once in your lifetime to Mecca. So how do you do this if you're in a very distant place? Well, mapping, cartography, navigation, all these sciences played into a religious ritual. And prayer times, you know, prayer times five times a day, that's complicated across a universe where there are what we now call time zones, but we recognize that the sun and the moon uh, are at different alt- attitudes at different times. How do you know when to pray? Well, very sophisticated charts were and books were eventually created with all the prayer times for the known cities so that a believer could take one of these books on a journey and know when to pray towards Mecca. So we had a lot of, and there are many other examples. One other quick example that I like is Islam places a big emphasis on hygiene, particularly at prayer time. You must wash your feet, you must wash your hands, you wash your face, at least symbolically. So this, so the big mosques developed very complicated systems of water delivery and plumbing. So this under, this required the understanding of hydronics and pressure and engineering problems so that water could be brought in, people could wash themselves properly before they went in to pray. So in this sense, Islam really served, was served by science. And the interesting thing is that the religious scholars accepted what the, relig- what the scientific scholars told them about these rituals, these directions. Um, there wasn't the same tension that we generally saw at this same time period between science or the idea of science and the idea of religion in the West. So let's talk about the house of wisdom and self that When was when was it founded? What was the idea behind the house of wisdom in itself? 
Well, Baghdad was formed, uh, formally started in 762 by the Abbasids, which was a breakaway Eastern-based Islamic empire. And the Abbasid victory in the inter-Islamic conflict was very important because it shifted everything eastward and incorporated Persia and Persian scholars, as well as Byzantine Christian scholars and Jews. It became a multi-ethnic empire. And history has shown that these kind of multi-ethnic, multi-confessional spaces are often very creative. So there was the basis for a lot of scientific activity. The caliphs themselves were highly educated. These are the rulers of the empire and put a real emphasis on science and philosophy. They often had their own tutors. They sponsored scholars. And this institution that became known as the House of Wisdom, we don't know very much about its formal origins or even its location, but it seems to have been a library or research center funded by the caliphs to bring all of this kind of knowledge into place. And it was a symbol of their power. I mean, it was definitely political in the sense that it demonstrated how powerful the rulers of Baghdad were, that they had could support this big operation and that it was worldly scholarship. And I think what gets lost, you earlier referred to the understudied nature of Islamic science. What gets lost is the unique contributions institutions like the House of Wisdom made to science. So they didn't just, much of their original work was brought in from Hindus and from Greek sources and from Roman sources, perhaps Chinese sources, but they didn't simply translate this into Arabic. We often think of them as translators. They translated it so they could work on it, but then they developed these ideas and refined them and improved them to a great deal. And that is particularly overlooked. So if you read Western textbooks, um, not specialty works, but textbooks of, that are maybe used in university or in high schools. They may refer to the Muslims as sort of caretakers of classical knowledge, but it very rarely refers to them as innovators, researchers in their own right. And they very much were. Some, someone you mentioned as well in the book, and I want to address this, is a scientist called Ptolemy. Not to be very confused, this you highlight in, in the book as well. Ptolemy the scientist, not the Egyptian dynasty, the Ptolemies. But that, how was he an inspiration for the Arabs and the Arab world in science? Well, in this period, his fundamental work on astronomy and cosmology was basically the text that everybody worked from. But the Arabs started noticing in particular and developed a critique of Ptolemy. In other words, there were seemingly contradictory elements of this big classical model of the cosmos. And the Greeks were a bit aware of them, but the Arabs really developed a critique that was so powerful that scholars started looking for answers. And ultimately that meant they had to suggest a rewriting of Ptolemy. So his was the basic model based on all planets moved in perfect circles. And of course, we now know that they tend to move in elliptical, the planets around the earth and around the sun move in elliptical fashion. Um, this was not known at the time, but there were clearly problems in Ptolemy. Um, and the Arabs opened the door to critiquing Ptolemy, which I argue in the book and elsewhere, opened the way for Copernicus with his revolutionary thought of the sun as the center of our universe, not the earth before 
Um, Copernicus really put that into play. The assumption was that the earth was the center, was the home of man, it had to be the center of, the, of God's universe. Um, Muslims opened the door by really breaking down Ptolemy's theory and finding lots of problems with it, which is, of course, is how science is done. You take a theory, you look at it, whether it's Einsteinian cosmology or Ptolemaic, it uh, doesn't matter, or Newtonian physics, and you say, well, this explains A, B, C, but it doesn't explain D. How do we explain D? And as you start explaining D, suddenly the theory has problems, and so you invent or develop a new one. That's the classic model of scientific innovation. Um, so that's what we had at work here. So they did a lot of work to try to establish Ptolemy's system. And when they couldn't, they started raising important questions. And something we discussed in a recent episode about Al-Andalus is that as well, it was, they didn't, they didn't clash with each other, not clash maybe, but the world of the House of Wisdom now in the Abbasid Caliphate and Al-Andalus with Cordoba, they did travel back and forth and then it changed literacy. And I said this in the episode as well, that what I find really fascinating is that while the Abbasids, there would be golden age in science, the Al-Andalus would have have a golden age in literacy and literary, literary work. And but they didn't contribute to science as well. For, for example, in, I believe you write about the agricultural contribution that the Al-Andalus contributes to. Yeah, agronomy was a big science there. And they made contributions to this critique of Ptolemy as well. Um, these, one of the fascinating things about this period that we're talking about was that for the most part, you could travel enormous distances mm. uh, across geographic space, more or less controlled and Secured I mean, by Islamic even power. Even Batuta is a, a perfect example of this. Yeah, and travel was how they did scholarship. Just the way today modern scholars fly to conferences and meet each other. Um, there was a lot of face-to-face -face work. And of course, without flight, it was a major endeavor and it required long distance travel, but it was very common. In fact, we, I tell in the book a story of one guy who basically never stopped moving. He just spent his life as a roving scholar and produced a lot of works and visited all of these centers of learning. And so they were interconnected in this kind of network. So something that I want to talk about as well is, and you, you talked about the earth and how it moved. They believed it was uh, earlier about how it was a moving around the center of the sun, etc. And that Ptolemy talked about. And something that they did find out because flat earthers were and they're very kind of a thing that Martin, that everyone believed in it, but they did talk to me about how they kind of found out that the Earth isn't flat, but not a sphere, sphere, I believe is the word for it, that they found out how, because it was kind of a hard, fascinating method of this. Yeah, well, thank you. The this notion of flat earth is complicated and I have not, am not an expert on the entire history, but there was generally an assumption in many Christian circles in particular that the earth was flat. I think we tended to, I mean, we know that by the time of Columbus, they didn't, they knew the earth was round. Mm. So we can sort of that story about sailors fearful they would fall off the end of the earth is probably more a Hollywood creation mm. than anything else, but you're right in general. The notion that the earth was a sphere was a radical idea in the west and 
pretty much taken as a given. And one of the ways, and the Greeks knew a lot about this as well, but what the Persians, uh, the, excuse me, the Abbasids decided to do, and this was funded by the Caliph himself, was to go out and measure the circumference of the earth. And so how do you do that? Well, they went out in the desert, basically, with chains and markers as distance they knew, and they measured a specific distance from point A to point B, and then they took readings of the celestial bodies to figure out what kind of arc they might have achieved. And then we know that a sphere would have 360 degrees, for example. So if they could um, get one degree of movement by their readings of the stars, then they could measure the distance between A and B, multiply it out. And what's amazing is that for relative primitive solution, ingenious, but primitive, they came very, very close to the actual circumference of the earth. So that was and that was sponsored by the Caliph al-Mahmoum in Baghdad. And the work was completed around 833, as far as we know, and remarkably accurate. And you did mention that they did try to think there was an easier way, more convenient way to find this out, but it, instead of walking around in the desert as well, wasn't there? Yeah, well, the Hindus had Hindu scholars had come to Baghdad very early in its founding and they had brought the notion of the sign which of course if you remember your trigonometry and i have to say i don't remember too much of mine um you can measure oh, i don't remember so, anything at all right so in trigonometry you can read so basically the basic model for all astronomy in this classical period was geometry everything was angles they didn't have distances they couldn't tell the distance between two planets but they could tell the angular what's called the angular distance so they were working with angles and by developing these trigonometric functions, they could do a lot of it mathematically and not have to do it geometrically. So that was a big improvement and led to the creation of good maps or reasonably good maps. And as I said earlier, this would help people in their religious ritual as well as in their scientific endeavors to have good maps, good ge and geography came a very important science in the Muslim world in this era. So how accurate were these maps compared to today's well not with the, with the satellites yeah well of course there's no comparison to that but they're very accurate um for the time and what's interesting and we can talk about this perhaps as well is they were more accurate than later christian influenced maps created in europe and the europeans have, during the early the late modern early modern period in the renaissance they had access to these Arab findings and these Arabic maps, these Muslim maps, but they chose not to follow them because they believed that this work, they were corrupt by Arab scholarship and they referred back to classical Greek notions of where various oceans were and various seas and cities. And so they kind of did themselves a disservice. Um, the Renaissance put such a premium on Greek texts that the subsequent work that the Arab and Muslim scholars had done for centuries was ignored. And so improvements to maps, improvements to geographical locations were overlooked or dismissed as corrupt Arab and Muslim work. And in a way, the Christian world went backwards, in, in particularly in geography. We can see that. Something that you write about as well is Muslim system, which I believe would be laid under the Fatimid Caliphate. So how, how, where do, how does Muslim Sicily come into the picture of in Arabic science? 
Well, as I said before, I think we see throughout history that melting pots, areas of mixed ethnologies, mixed religious bases, religious language groupings, cultural traditions are often extremely rich in their cultural output. And Sicily, right on the border of the Muslim world and the Christian world, and power in Sicily and Southern Italy tended to go back and forth for a while. And of course, Frederick II, who united a lot of this area and became the first Holy Roman Emperor, he was educated in an Arabic context, even though he was nominally Christian. And some of his contemporaries even wondered if he was a secret, if he were perhaps a secret Muslim. Um, to me, that's not so important. What's important is that he understood the value of the philosophy and science and even the artistic and uh, work that the Muslims were doing. He sponsored many of them, and we believe he, his own philosophy tutor was a Muslim. So it was a very rich mixture of Christian, Muslim, and Jewish, and other inputs that created an opening for a space, if you will, for creative work. And there's also the story, and this just might, might not be too relatable to the episode, but when Frederick II visited Jerusalem and how they didn't do the Friday prayer, and how it was a massive disappointment for him, because that's what he wanted to hear when he was in Jerusalem, the Friday Friday prayer. Yeah, that was a lovely story. Um, having been raised in Islamic context, or at least surrounded by Islamic references, he had, seems, we understand, dreamt of hearing the call to prayer early morning as he was sleeping in Jerusalem. But out of respect for the emperor's visit, the religious authorities withheld the call to prayer led to let him sleep and he was apparently deeply disappointed mm. about this yeah so let's talk about and we mentioned this early in the episode names such as roger bacon and francis bacon and no relation to kevin bacon i assume but uh that was bad that was a bad joke there but how did the western world eventually touch up with arabic science science and it's the world of science itself of course you know the renaissance is a lot of help contribution to this but have, when did they eventually start learning from the arabs and catch up on their own well adelard returned in the early 1100s with some of these texts he wasn't alone i tend to focus on him because he we have more information about him he's a very interesting character and he was a groundbreaking figure. Um, but there were many students, translators, people who learned Arabic, um, who went to the Middle East, who worked with locals who perhaps, particularly Jews and in, in Andalus, they might understand both Western languages and Arabic, and they acted as translators and assistants and co-create, excuse me, co-creators of this material. So text started arriving, um, influence, there was a hunger for this kind of work and the longevity of the Arab contribution to Western culture is really quite remarkable, especially given that we tend not to pay it a lot of attention these days. So for example, Avicenna's famous text on medicine was being used and printed in Italy into the, into the 1700s and relied upon in both the teaching facilities and in use. Um, so medicine was extremely, Arab medicine was extremely influential. And it was based, it was built on the Greek models. So it was a continuation in many ways. But as I said, the Arabs really advanced this notion. One area that they were particularly good at was 
what we would call germ theory. The, there's a good story out of Baghdad that when they decided to build a new hospital, they took pieces of raw meat and hung it in different parts of the city and waited to see which areas putrefied or spoiled first. And they, their theory was that the air was not clean. They didn't have an immediate notion of germs, but what we would now say presence of too many germs. And so they eliminated those areas from their construction plans. And it's just a small example, but this is at a time in London and Paris were just tiny little dirty cities uh, or even settlements if they were even uh, really settled fully at that time. Um, so how did it work? Well, we don't know a lot about the transmission, but we do know that a lot of these texts were brought back and it became a matter of pride in the early post Adelard period to have a reference to Arabic science. Um, when you read the Arab or the translations of Arabic astronomy and astrology, even there's a lot of underlying sort of Aristotelian philosophy inside that. And so there was a great deal of knowledge and, and a great deal of um, information conveyed. Um, one area that's particularly interesting to me is the question of Aristotle, who became, you know, he's known as the philosopher in Western culture. And, and he invented among the Arabs as well, highly respected. The early reception of Aristotle in the early modern Europe was based on the Arab interpretation of Aristotle. So Aristotle is an interesting problem because he, of course, did his work before the advent of Christianity. Um, and so he's working in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere that is not monotheistic. It's not both the Muslims and the Christians, of course, believe in one God, as do the Jews, of course. But Aristotle is working in a different tradition. So how do you take a, a cosmology that doesn't account for a single all-powerful God, and how do you make it palatable to a religious community that does? And so the Muslims spent centuries sort of arbitrating, if you will, Aristotle and creating an Aristotle that was acceptable to monotheistic culture. This is what that the, would not contradict the Islamic religion, right? Right, and what this did then was a save, perhaps arguably centuries of philosophical work on the half of Christians receiving, because they're because of the collapse of Western Europe in what we often call the Dark Ages, whether they were really dark or not is often argued. And I won't get into that, mm -hmm. but they were dark enough. Um, their first reception of Aristotle was not from the original text, but through the Arab rediscovery. And again, this was not simply translation, but the Arabs developed these ideas in ways, as you say, were uh, not in contradiction to their own monotheism. So that's another example of how this material made its way and helped jumpstart scientific activity in the West. Hmm. So let's talk about the devastation fall. And we made an episode of Mon Unreal Conquest a while ago as well um, by the dads uh, and the Abbasid Caliphate, but let's talk about the fall of the House of Wisdom and the consequences that the Mongol invasion brought, because they, it's, it was quite devastating. You have so many scientific papers lost and thrown in the river because of the Mongol conquest and the Mongols devastation of Baghdad. So, how do you think the world should have been, if that I want to start with this question, that do you think the world would be more advanced today if we hadn't lost all this contribution under the Mongol 
simulation. Wow, that's an interesting thought. Um, always hard to say, of course, because activities move and sort of they don't there's not a linear line really there's not a linear relationship between knowledge and its and its future and so we tend to look backwards and say well we raved we arrived at so-called modern science today so it must have been this and this and this that created and, and, so, i mean I, I would like to add to that that i think it's rather silly to think that the world would be more advanced without religion religion or christianity or is or any religion at all i, I think it's rather silly assumption the world would be more advanced without religion uh, at all. It just that maybe could, I, I did, something I wanted to add, but you know, to to that comments. Yeah, of course. Um, no, I I would agree with that. It's a very you know, religion. We tend to break it down in the modern life to, to beliefs and to prohibitions and things. But mm-hmm. of course, it's a whole way of life, and particularly Islam, which is a universal prescription for all aspects of life. I think you know we need to be careful about not thinking of Islam as just sort of an Eastern version of some other religion. It actually is an entire way of life. Um, and as we said, it, it really encouraged science. There's a famous hadith or saying from the prophet Muhammad, you know, search for knowledge, even in China and elsewhere. He, he, the Quran tells us that we can use the stars for navigation. Now, these are radical ideas at the time, because in Christian Europe of that same era, most of attention was focused on the other world, on afterlife, on uh, and very little work was done on studying the world around us in what we would now call scientific method. And in fact, I'd like to come back to Adelard because I think Adelard, the reason I focus on him so much in the book is I think he introduced or helped introduce this very fundamental notion. And I actually end my book uh, with it. And so I'd like to read that quotation. Yeah. He says, of course, of course, God rules the universe, but we may and should inquire into the natural world. The Arabs teach us that. Yeah. And he, he writes this in his commentary. And what's so important about that is, in other words, we can observe God, we can respect God, we can accept God's power, but at the same time, we have a right. Man is a curious being, and so we have the right and the duty to understand the world around us. And that kind of, to my mind, opens the door to science. And so, well, we can talk about Adelard brought this idea and that idea and this technology. To me, that's his real fundamental contribution is to help open the way to, we have a religious worldview in this era. However, we still can do science. And, and that's revolutionary. And something I want to talk about as well before you go is the fall of Arabic science. And I, I'm, something I'm, that I will have to run here, but when Ottoman, the Ottomans, the later Ottomans, would introduce the, I, I don't forget what the word is, but they would focus to save the empire. They would focus on our, on Islamic theology. And I, I, I don't have the words, I'm so sorry, but... The, that kind of it kind of backfired in the sense the the theology that focuses on Islamic theology and Islam first as the means to save the empire. Would they say that the failure to to, to when they did that it kind of saved the empire, but again they stopped the progress as well. Would is that kind of one part that stopped across the fall of Arabic and Islamic science in a way? Um, Sorry for stuttering I, a little bit there. No, but... no, no, that's fine. I have to be honest. I, uh, 
it's not a field that I know too much about mm. Ottoman later Ottoman period. Um, so I might have to go around that in my response, but let's talk about the collapse of Islam or of Islamic science. I, when I lecture about this book or when I do some of my university stuff or when I do book talks, I'm often asked several of the same questions. And one of the key questions, and it's, it's a modern question. You only get it nowadays, I would suspect. And the question is, well, if Jonathan, everything you say is true and the Muslims are so great at science and philosophy, what, you know, look at them now. I mean, that's the crude version of the question. But I get it a lot. Why is Islamic world such a mess? This is an interesting question. And I guess it's my personality and my approach to questions like that is to not only try to answer the question, but to kind of question the question, if you will. And I used to say, and I'm going to say it again, I've never had that question about Greece. So we talk about the great Greek intellectual contribution to Western culture. And it, there's no doubt that there was one. But no one ever says, well, you know, today, Greece, it's kind of a minor country in the EU, and we go there for a holiday, and we drink a lot of beer, and we sleep on the beach, and it's not particularly powerful, and it's not particularly influential. So what's wrong with Greeks? No one has ever asked me that question. Yeah. But the question about Muslims, I sense, is they want me to say that there's something essentially flawed about Muslim culture that led to the decline. And in fact, if you, if you try to be more objective, you see that all empires eventually fall, they weaken for a host of reasons that are not particularly unique to them. Um, the destruction, as you mentioned, of the Mongols, the destruction, so I'm not sure it's well known, but that area used to be the breadbasket of Eastern Europe, of the East. Um, Baghdad, Iraq was a huge grain producing area. Now we see pictures on TV and we see the deserts. Well, desertification, you know, climate change yeah. um, was partly a result of the destruction by the Mongols of this highly sophisticated, highly centralized system of irrigation. That system never been recreated and probably can't be in the modern world. So that was a huge blow. Um, the rise of other rival powers, this happens. Um, we can't overlook decadence. I mean, that's a classic explanation for why empires fall. They become so Colonialism, powerful. Colonialism, of course. I'm sorry? Colonialism, of course. Yeah, of course. But, you know, as I say, rival powers develop their own techniques and technologies. Um, empires often turned inward under pressure. As you said, the Ottomans started to rally around a theocratic reading of Islam and didn't may perhaps develop some of its more intellectual. Again, I'm not an expert. I'm going more by what you said than what I know myself. Um, so I would say that the Islamic empire collapsed for the same reason that all empires eventually seem to collapse. And there's nothing essential about Islam, um, but under the pressure of colonialism, under the pressure of interference from the West, it tended to turn inward. And that inward defense became a theocratic theological defense, not a sort of a broader intellectual cultural defense. So one thing that I've noticed when I lecture, particularly in the Middle East, is that a lot of Arab professors, Muslims, Persians, whatever the Turks, of say 30, 40, 50 years old, 20 years old, right out of grad school, whatever, they come up to me and say, you know, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. No one ever taught us. I gave a lecture at the Northwestern's campus in Doha a couple of years ago. And I talked about the Arab intellectual contribution to the whole idea of university. 
And many of these uh, young professors came out and said, you know, I've never learned this stuff. They didn't teach us this in Egypt. They didn't teach us this in Jordan. They didn't teach us this in the UAE. They didn't teach us this in Iran. And that's such a pity. I find that really heartbreaking that a lot of young Muslims don't even know their own heritage. So I hope this book will help with that as well. But I also want to bring the message to the Western community that, hey, there's a lot here that we need to pay attention to and not just get bogged down in the stereotypes of Islam as backward, as violent, as dangerous as our enemy. But we owe a great debt to Islamic culture. And unfortunately, 9-11 didn't help the viewpoint of view of Western world on the Islamic world. So it kind of put us back a bit, I would say. Well, it certainly sharpened the debate, as it were. Um, but I'm hoping books like mine, and there are many other scholars doing work like this, can start to bring a new way of looking at things, a more nuanced and distant. You know, when you look at the big picture, um, we wouldn't be who we were as Westerners, quote unquote, without Islamic culture. That's really the message of the book. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Before you go, do you have anything you want to promote? And where any place people can find you? Or where can people buy your book? Should they be interested in learning more about Arabic science and Arabic contribution to the Western world? Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. I'm hoping that we can put some links in the bottom of your yeah, podcast absolutely. and I will provide some links if people would like. To. I have my personal website as well as the website for the book through my publisher, uh, Bloomsbury Press. And um, and also, I think you said you'd link the recent animated book talk yeah. that I did if people are interested. So I appreciate that very much. It's been a lot of fun and thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. This has been well that edged well. If you liked this episode, make sure to check out some other episodes we have on this podcast. We got more Islamic episodes coming out. We got one on Moodle art and architecture coming out soon. So please check that out. Please like, share, and subscribe. We are on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on iTunes, please consider writing a review for the podcast. That would help us out a lot. This is my name is Alan. This has been one that age twelve. I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.